Good morning, everybody. Welcome to each and every one of you. It was a great week to be a part of the city of Atlanta, was it not? It was so encouraging to, to see pictures like these that I want to put up on the screen from this last week. I mean, it was a great little celebration in the middle of the field, and then the beginning of an amazing celebration where nearly two million people showed up to greet the victorious team. And so it's, it, it was hopefully a defining moment for that franchise and for the unity of our city. I mean, after several years of contested elections and difficult moments of tension for us as a city. May this be a little beachhead of the unity. I, I was talking with somebody who was a part of the parade and said that as they were in the parade, they were amazed by the beauty and the unity of our city. And may that just be the beginning of a new level of coming together for us instead of coming apart. We're in the midst of a series of messages about defining moments, and we've been looking at some of the defining moments of kind of a neglected part of the Bible, that end of the Old Testament that we don't read very much in terms of its history. And we've talked about the defining moment of Nehemiah and rebuilding the wall, and the defining moment of Ezra and renewing the promise of God's Word. And this week, we're going to talk about reassembling church with a book of the Bible that I know you are so familiar with, the book of Haggai. And to enter into this part of the Bible, I need to tell you my personal story with Haggai. I went to seminary in this place, and this was the chapel, the Miller Chapel of Princeton Seminary. And I was invited in my senior year to preach in Miller Chapel. And I was so excited and so terrified to do this. Like, imagine standing up before all of your seminary professors and all of your peers in a place where you're all training to do the same thing. And I was so terrified. I, I just, I had months to prepare and I could not figure out what to preach on that, that I wasn't going to preach something. And I, I had nightmares of like my Old Testament professor coming up to me, you completely missed the point. <laughs> or a peer coming up to me and saying, that, that is so distracting. And so I decided to preach on the book of Haggai because I was going to be the foremost expert on the book of Haggai at Princeton Theological Seminary in its history. And I went to the library and I checked out commentaries and I read and I was amazed at how much I could learn about this short little book. I was prepared to do my research. What I wasn't prepared for in the midst of my fear was for God to speak to me. Let's look at the book of Haggai. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest. Does anybody have any questions? <laughs> I have lost you with the first verse of Haggai. Let me set the stage and give you a few key dates to set the scene. In 597, Israel falls, Jerusalem is destroyed, and the Babylonian Empire takes them away. 539, roughly 60 years later, the Persian victory takes place, and a new king comes into power by the name of King Cyrus. He allows about 40,000 Israelites to return back to their homelands after those couple of generations that have been lost. 
In 521, after Cyrus's reform, King Darius, Cyrus's son, takes over. And according to what we just read in the first verse, we know exactly what day this is. Very few dates that we know with this precision in the Bible. This is August 29th of 520 BC. And a prophet by the name of Haggai starts to speak a message. Let's look at verse 2. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. And then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? So there's a presenting problem here according to the prophet. The presenting problem is that the temple of God lies in ruins. In Jerusalem today, this is where you get to see some of the ruins of the later temple. And yet, what we see is this pile of rocks would have been the reality of the first temple for Jerusalem. But there's a problem behind the problem. And the problem behind the problem is the amount of time, and this is why the dating is so important that I went over with you. Because if we didn't know the dates, it kind of feels like that God's being impatient, that they just got back from, you know, their time in exile, and they're trying to rebuild their lives. But what you need to realize is that because of the precisions of the dates that we have, God's people have been back into their land for 19 years. Been a time of peace and prosperity for them, and they have rebuilt their lives and their houses and their communities And yet, after almost two decades, in the middle of that community, the house of God is nothing but a pile of rubble. And so you see, there was a problem, which was a pile of rubble. And then there was a problem behind the problem, which was their procrastination. And the problem behind the problem that was behind the problem, if you're still tracking with me, is that God was not at the center of their lives. They wanted the blessing of returning to God's land, but they didn't want the blessing of God himself. And so this image captures some of that for me. Imagine if you were living in this house on the right that is in really good shape, and that every other house in the community looks like your house, and the one that is in ruins, tattered, and destroyed would be God's house in the middle of that community. This is the contrast of what is being talked about from the prophet Haggai. Now, as people today, we know that the church is not just a building, that the church can be a building, but the church is a community of God's people. So as we kind of look back in this time of history, it is not just for us that we're saying, hey, it's time to rebuild the church structure. And so when I read the book of Haggai, I have one question for us today, and that is this. Why are our stadiums full and our churches so empty? Why are our restaurants so full and our churches so empty? Why is the traffic returned to normal in this city? 
and Sunday morning not return to normal in this city. One of the things that haunts me about this passage, if you're a long student of Scripture, is a little phrase in what we've read where God says, these people, which sends a chill down my spine because if you know anything about the prophets and the way that God often refers to his people, most of the time he calls them my people. Instead, he refers to them as these people. There is a detachment between the people and their God. And this will be important that we'll see a little later in this chapter. And so let's keep reading in the book of Haggai. Now this is what the Lord Almighty says, give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but you have harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them into a purse with holes in it. I love how the kind of the older versions of the Bible say, consider how you have fared. Give careful thought to your ways. It's like a a parent talking to a child that sees a child that's about to do something wrong. Be very careful right now. Are you really thinking right now? Because what Haggai is saying in the imagery of that pile of rubble, which is the symbolism of God's presence in their community, is that they are chronically unsatisfied and that he provides five images to demonstrate how they never have enough. They've planted much but harvested little. They eat but never have enough. They drink but never have your fill. Clothes but they're not warm. And money, the most haunting image of all in this passage, they keep putting all of their earnings into a bag, into a purse, and it has a hole in the middle of it. And all of that money just keeps falling to the ground. People often joke when we come to this time of year, like, oh, you must hate the stewardship season and the fundraising. I don't hate it. I don't see what we do in church like a typical not-for-profit is fundraising. I see it as soul-raising. What does it profit someone to gain the whole world but to lose their soul? Guys, we could have so much, and we could keep shoving what we have into a bag with holes and we will continue to be chronically unsatisfied. I've seen a 92-year-old man get this. In my previous church, there was a curmudgeon of a man at 92 years old who had earned a lot. And he still had really good mobility. Such great mobility that he got to ski with his great-grandchildren. Most of his friends were in living arrangements like nursing care facilities. And he felt sad that they were disconnected from church. And so he started going to Best Buy and buying portable DVD players and taking the broadcast of the service, which wasn't broadcast over the internet or anything at the time, They would cut DVDs on Sunday morning, and then he personally would drive around to his friends, and he would give them this little portable DVD player out of his own generosity, and he would show them that they could watch the service. Week by week, person by person, he was reassembling church for those who could not come. 
And what he told me was that he had never had more fun with his money than when he was giving it away. In other words, he had sewn the bottom of his bag and it was no longer falling out. Let's keep reading. This is what the Lord Almighty says, give careful thought to your ways, go up to the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What brought you home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each one of you is busy with your own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and on the mountains and on the grain and on the new wine and the olive oil and everything else the ground produced on the people and livestock and all the labor of your hands. It amazes me in the midst of this pandemic that when I run into people out in the community, when I see you at the grocery store, and I haven't seen you in church in a while. And I ask, it would be great to see you on Sunday morning. The most common answer is they give, oh pastor, I am so busy. The word that Haggai uses to describe why the people have not reassembled church 2,500 years ago is the same excuse we give today that they were busy, which in Hebrew is a term for running or sprinting. Are we able to really pull together in the priority of our time, not just our resources? This last week, I was in California teaching a doctoral seminar um, and while I was there, I was reminded of how blessed we are in the state of Georgia with this little thing called rain. Because almost every billboard that I passed in California said this. The ground is brown, and they're in the midst of a serious drought. God uses the drought of what Haggai is challenging his people in that time. He uses that scarcity to try to draw people's attention back to him. When we go through those moments of scarcity, those are the moments when we realize how much we need one another and we need God. Can I tell you that the saddest thing on what I hope is the heels of this pandemic the saddest thing to me is that we've been through a period of drought that didn't seem to bring a lot of people closer to God and to one another. Instead, it pulled us further apart. I ran into a friend this week who I hadn't seen in kind of the many years that we've been gone. And he said, I watch you every week. And he also mentioned about how he watches this person's sermon and that person's sermon that once the pandemic hit, he was watching three sermons a week at the gym. <laughs> and he realized after almost two years of doing that, that even though he was getting 300% of the sermon quotient of what he used to get, 
that there was still something missing. I get to cherish what I do on this community's behalf in getting to preach and to share with you. And you could binge watch my sermons and other sermons. That alone is not church. We need to be with one another. We need to reassemble the communities of faith and to pull together and to celebrate once again. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message to the, of the Lord to the people. Well, I am with you, declares the Lord. And so the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Josatak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. And they came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month. We know exactly this date as well. The previous date was in August, August 29th. This date is September 21st, 520 BC. This is 23 days later after Haggai preached originally to them. Roughly three weeks. And three things had changed. They responded in three ways. One, obedience. Two, assurance. Three, action. They obeyed the Lord their God. And the word 14 different times in the book of Haggai that they kept using is that the Lord Almighty, the Lord Almighty, the Lord Almighty. And what happens by the time you get towards the end of the book of Haggai, spoiler alert, is that instead of this just being those people, the people now refer to God as their God. And so they obeyed. And then God assured them by saying, I am with you. This is one of the last prophecies before the hundreds of years of silence before Jesus. And it's this promise, I am with you. And God stirred up the spirit of his people. His Holy Spirit lived within them. But most of all, they acted. They got to work. They reassembled and rebuilt church. Which leads me, naturally, in a segue to this man. To Rocky. To Sylvester Stallone. Yo, Adrian. You recall the original Rocky running up the stairs, right, in the city of Philadelphia? The iconic sports movie, maybe considered one of the greatest sports movies of all time. And then in the year 2006, he resurrects his character for the Creed movies. But what you might not know about Sylvester Stallone just from Rocky is you might not know the story of his life and how he grew up a Christian and yet walked away and made some really bad decisions. But by the time 2006 came around and he was resurrecting his character for the next series of movies, he was interviewed towards the beginning of those movies 
And this is what he said. I was raised in a Christian home. I went to Christian schools and I was taught the faith and went as far as I could with it. Until one day I got into the so-called real world and I was presented with temptation. I kind of like lost my way and made a lot of bad choices. The more I go to church and the more I turn myself over to the presence of believing in Jesus and listening to his word and having him guide my hand, I feel as though the pressure is off me now. You need to have the expertise and the guidance of someone else. You can't train yourself, Rocky says. I feel the same way about Christianity and about what church is. The church is the gym of the soul. Will you say this last phrase with me? The church is the gym of the soul. And just in the same way as you would not ignore your physical health and your emotional health, Part of what we need to rebuild in our community is our spiritual This is why you need church. It's why you can't outsource church. It's why we need to be the church, not just for our sake, but for the sake of our community and our world. Because my friends, this is what people's experience in our community is right now. Their experience of church is that it is in rubble and we are hiding in our own houses and that church remains a pile of rocks, lifeless, where we can't gather together unless we make a change, unless we make a difference. And so my hope and prayer for for you and for me and for every single one of us is that we will start to reassemble church in the midst of a drought, a spiritual drought. And that in our scarcity, God will pull us back to himself. And that we will learn how to gather in places like this again. And that we will learn how to celebrate like this again because the victory has been secured. Greatest little detail in the book of Haggai that I want to leave you with today is that the Hebrew word for Haggai is the word for festival, to party, to celebrate. And this is God's invitation for us, that we once again would become the joyful feast of the people of God. So let's pray. Our loving God and Father, thank you for this ancient 2,500-year-old text with very specific dates that reminds us of what is important in the priority of our lives. Forgive us, God, for, for not realizing that our inner lives and that you in our lives reminds, lies in ruins. How quickly we've come back to our stadiums and our streets and ignored our churches. Help us to go from being those people to being your people. Give us careful consideration and careful thought of how our lives are really going. And in the midst of our chronic unsatisfaction, help us to release our lives before you. Instead of excuses of being busy and running around, help us to be still, to know that you are God in the midst of obedience, 
will you become our Almighty. In the midst of your assurance, may we receive your Spirit. And in the midst of action, may we get to work. For being the church is like a gem for our soul. And we pray all of these things with great anticipation. In the strong name of Jesus the Christ and all of God's people said,